I travel a lot uh, throughout mostly rural America, but also through airports. I think it's fine right now. I think that uh, for the most part, we probably are stymieing ourselves with analysis paralysis. I think at this point, folks have already made their decisions regarding vaccinations or not. It's time to just live with those decisions. Kids as young as six months old are now eligible for coronavirus vaccine. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have authorized both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for use in young kids. Meanwhile, the U.S. continues to feel the effects of Omicron and its subvariants. BA4 and BA5 now account for more than half of all new COVID infections. In response, the FDA has ordered boosters specifically targeting Omicron to be rolled out in the fall. We're answering your questions about vaccinating young kids and navigating these new variants in this month's installment of Vaccination Nation. We'll be back with more in just a moment. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's jump into it. We're answering your questions during this installment of Vaccination Nation. Joining us now is Dr. Paul Offit. He's the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. Dr. Offit, welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be back. Also with us is Angela Rasmussen. She's a virologist at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan. She's also an affiliate of Georgetown's Center for Global Health Science and Security. Angela, great to have you. Always great to be here, Jen. Thanks. Uh, Dr. Offit, before we get into these Omicron subvariants, let's talk about the authorization of COVID vaccines for young kids. 20 million kids under five are now eligible for the vaccine. How significant is this? Well, I think it's important. Um, young kids don't frequently uh, have severe illness, but nonetheless, they can get sick and they can occasionally be hospitalized. When we were presented with data Um, on June 14th to discuss whether or not we agreed with uh, allowing these vaccines to be distributed for young children. We learned that over the past two years, there had been roughly 45,000 hospitalizations in children less than five years of age. 10,000 of those children were admitted to the intensive care unit, and a little over 400 of those children had died. And two-thirds of those children had no known uh, risk factors that would have put them at a higher risk for severe COVID. So I think it, it is important to have a vaccine for young children. We got this question from a member of the 1A Text Club who writes, when will the FDA and CDC give regular instead of emergency use authorization for the vaccines for school-age children? This will go a long way to allowing school districts to mandate the vaccine for attendance at public and private schools. We really need all school-age children to be vaccinated in order to protect communities in the fall and winter. Dr. Offit, what can you tell us? 
Well, the licensing process is different than what is now this emergency use uh, authorization. The licensing process means that the FDA then licenses or allows for use not only the product, but they also sort of license the, the building and they license the process. That can take six to 10 months. I mean, functionally for the purpose of, of, of the person who's deciding whether or not to get the vaccine, it doesn't really matter. Um, what uh, it does matter, however, in terms of mandating, it's uh, it's much easier to do that when you get a license. I'm not sure this vaccine is going to be mandated for, for children for school entry. I think we'll just have to see how this virus plays out over the next year or two. Well, the American Academy of Pediatrics has found that only 36 percent of 5 to 11-year-olds have received one dose of the COVID vaccine. Dr. Offit, why are those numbers so low? I think generally people tend to think of their children as somewhat invulnerable uh, in the one hand. And on the other hand, I guess they're nervous about inoculating them with a, a biological product that they don't understand very well. I mean, that, the vaccine for the 12 to 15-year-old has been out for more than a year. About 60% of those children have received the vaccine. This vaccine for the 5 to 11-year-old has been out since November. So it's been out for seven or eight months and still only a little over 30% have received it. And I suspect that for the less than 5-year-old, that percentage is going to be even lower. Well, we talked to White House COVID-19 response coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha at the Aspen Ideas Festival last week. Here's what he had to say about vaccine hesitancy when it comes to young kids. Adults are the most vaccinated. Then 12 to 17-year-olds are more vaccinated than 5 to 11-year-olds, but less than adults. Every group that has come on later, it has just taken time for that to ramp up. So one is just patience. It's going to take time. we got to build up that confidence. Second is I think we have to counter a lot of misinformation. There has been this kind of concerted effort by a lot of people to downplay the risk of COVID in children, to minimize it, to suggest that it's not a big deal, uh, and to play up the risks of these incredibly safe vaccines. So Obviously, one part of this is being very, very clear with Americans about how extraordinarily safe, extraordinarily safe these vaccines are and why kids should get vaccinated. Angela, how effective are these vaccines when it comes to protecting young kids from contracting COVID? So as Dr. Offit said, um, these vaccines are, are very good, but children do have a lower incidence of severe complications from COVID-19. Now that said, um, it, it certainly is no comfort to parents who does have a child who has severe COVID-19. And I think that's what we really need to focus on. Yes, the likelihood is the highest that, that kids aren't going to get incredibly sick, but we don't know much about the incidence of long COVID in children. We don't uh, know what the risk factors are for developing severe COVID. And in that regard, the vaccines, which are just as safe in kids as they are in adults, um, are, are really a smart move to make sure that your kid's risk is as low as possible from severe COVID and from long-term complications potentially from that COVID. We got this email from Nina who says, my four-year-old and one-year-old are scheduled for their first COVID vaccines this afternoon. I feel like we are the only people in our friend group who are seeking out this vaccine for our young children. Angela, how much of this is about protecting kids from severe illness and how much of it is about trying to prevent community spread? Well, unfortunately, the vaccine formulations that we have out right now are, are really directed towards the original recipe SARS coronavirus 2 spike protein. And that spike protein is effectively no longer in circulation. So that means that in all age groups, uh, the vaccines are more limited than they used to be in their ability to prevent infection altogether. Now that said, um, the, the vaccines still do protect against infection to a certain degree, 
just less than they used to. And I think that probably that is figuring into to people's equations because they're seeing people who are vaccinated getting infected with the various Omicron sublineages. And they really, they think about the risk to their kids perhaps uh, and knowing that that's low, you know, they may wanna wait for a vaccine that has been updated to reflect the current variants that are circulating. They also may do that risk calculation in their head and decide that it's not worth taking the chance because they don't necessarily have a full understanding of the benefits that the vaccines do provide. And they think that the risk to their kids is low. And I think that probably all of those things are factoring into decisions about getting uh, the vaccines for kids um, or for, for just younger people in general, um, even in those older adolescent age groups, um, knowing that what we know now about the, the variants that are circulating. Angela, the Omicron subvariants BA4 and BA5 now account for over half of all new COVID cases in the country. How do these subvariants differ from other variants? So this is something that people really should keep in mind about all of the Omicron subvariants is that they're all quite different from each other as far as the immune system is concerned. And all of them are very different from the, the variants that were circulating before. So all Omicron is very different from Delta, but BA4 and BA5 are actually quite different from BA1, which caused the big uh, winter surge last year. And the place where they differ is of course the spike protein. So that means that people who were vaccinated uh, using the original recipe Wuhan 1 strain um, are going to have fewer immune responses that are going to directly target BA4 and BA5. And that's why we're seeing so many of these infections. In addition to that, BA4 and BA5 contain a couple specific mutations that weren't present in BA1, which means that people who were vaccinated and had a BA1 infection uh, may also not have really potent neutralizing responses to BA4 and BA5. Now, that said, um, there has been a lot of misinformation going around about this, too, that suggests that BA4 and BA5 are, are completely invulnerable to all prior immune responses, and that's just simply not true. So it is more likely that you're going to be infected with BA4 or BA5, even if you had a BA1 infection, but it doesn't mean that it's an absolute certainty. Um, they, they are different. They do have these mutations that not only help them to evade these prior immune responses, but may also increase their transmissibility, um, improve their infectivity and fitness, which means that they essentially are more efficient at being viruses, at infecting a host and replicating in it. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that they are uh, completely new viruses. They are still Omicron sublineages, and we do still have some residual immunity from either a prior BA1 infection or vac and or vaccination uh, to, these, to these variants. So that's something that people do need to keep in mind, that even though they're still at risk of getting infected with BA4 and BA5, uh, if they have some prior immunity, they still do have protection against severe disease caused by BA4 and BA5. And, and talk a little bit more about the symptoms and likelihood of severe disease as a result of these subvariants. So this is something that's very difficult to untangle because we're no longer in a situation where there's a high proportion of people who have no residual immunity whatsoever. Um, most people at this point have either been infected with some prior variant of SARS coronavirus 2 and or they've been vaccinated. So that makes it very difficult to tell whether or not BA4 and BA5 are actually more pathogenic 
uh, than, than other strains that were circulating before. Now, there is some evidence that BA1 uh, may be inherently a little bit less pathogenic. Um, there were some studies that showed that it primarily stuck to the upper respiratory tract. It appears that's not the case with BA4 and BA5. And by pathogenic, all- and Angela, just explain what you mean by that. By pathogenic, I mean it's more likely to cause severe disease. So pathogenesis is the process by which a virus causes disease. So when we say a virus is more pathogenic, that means that it's more likely to to cause more severe disease or more pathology. Um, And it does look like people who have been infected with BA4 and BA5 are experiencing severe lower respiratory tract disease at a higher rate than they were with BA1. But this is still something that's in progress. And importantly, we haven't seen the same level of hospitalization and death that we've seen with past variant surges, um, including Delta. So that makes it very difficult to tell whether or not BA4 and BA5 are intrinsically the most virulent variants that we've seen yet, the most pathogenic viruses, um, or if they are just sort of able to cause more infections and therefore are able to cause more severe disease. We also got this question from Allison who tweets, how good are the at-home tests at detecting new variants? And we know we're at a stage in the pandemic where more people are doing at-home testing, testing that isn't necessarily reported to public health um, institutions. But Angela, do we have an answer to that question? So we do and we don't. Um, So the rapid antigen tests that, that the caller is talking about typically detect the N protein or the nucleocapsid protein and not the spike protein. Now, the good news is for the Omicron family, the N protein is less uh, mutated than the spike protein. So it's more similar to the, the N proteins that those rapid tests were designed against. But the reason we don't know is that uh, most of those tests are proprietary and we don't know exactly which part of the N protein they're targeting. Now, it does look like the rapid antigen tests do detect um, all of the Omicron subvariants, but I've had a lot of anecdotal data that suggests that people are becoming symptomatic before testing positive on a rapid antigen test. Now, I can't put numbers to that because, again, a lot of this is anecdotal reports, um, but that may be for a couple different reasons. It could mean that the tests are less sensitive to detecting the, the currently circulating subvariants of Omicron. It could also mean that people's prior immunity is actually controlling viral replication to the point that they're actually not producing enough N protein when they are infected to trigger those tests. So they they are infected, they are making some virus and they're developing symptoms, but they're not actually shedding enough N protein for those rapid antigen tests to detect it. And we do need to do more research to find out what which of those scenarios is true. So Dr. Offit, for people who are planning on traveling this summer, should they rely on at-home antigen, te- antigen tests, or should we be looking more at a PCR test to, to make sure we're not infected? Well, I guess um, I would still go with the, the, uh, the antigen testing. The problem with PCR testing is um, it's, it's like the good news and bad news, and they're both the same thing, which is that it's a very sensitive test. So, so you can be PCR positive for months um, after, after being exposed to the virus, but that, that doesn't mean you're still contagious to others. So I think it can be uh, a little misleading in that sense. Well, I, I personally would go with the antigen test. So if we're using the antigen test, then is it a matter of perhaps testing more frequently? If, they, if there's some question about sensitivity of these tests and whether they're truly capturing BA4 and BA5, Dr. Offit? 
Sure. I mean, well, that, that's, that's, it's always an advantage to test more than once in that it, it, uh, it can confirm something that you think is true. But um, I, I just want to make a point about it because I think Dr. Rasmussen made a very important point that shouldn't get lost, which is that while it is true that Omicron, the BA1 variant, and then these subvariants like BA4, BA5, BA2, et cetera, are somewhat more immunovasive in terms of protection against uh, all symptomatic illness, especially mild illness, they, these vaccines are still holding up well in terms of protection against severe illness. So, so people should be reassured in that. I, I, there was one uh, email that you read right before we went to break where yeah, there was uh, someone who was upset that they were getting mild infection despite being vaccinated. That's okay. I mean, the goal of the vaccine is protection against severe disease, and this vaccine is meeting that goal. We got this question from Michael who emails, are COVID mutations mitigated if people, if more people are vaccinated? If yes, why is that not emphasized to curb infection rates? Angela, what can you tell us? So I, I don't really completely understand the question because mutation, and I'll explain why, mutation is something that the virus is going to do so long as it's being transmitted and it's replicating. Mutation is a, a normal random process that occurs during RNA virus replication, and there's no way to really mitigate it other than stopping transmission. Um, right now, our vaccines are not able to do that, and I think that there is a question as to whether these vaccines whether it's possible to actually make sterilizing vaccines that will completely prevent infection against a respiratory virus. And part of the reason for that is that these viruses infect through a mucosal surface, through the respiratory tract, um, and uh, immunity on those mucosal surfaces, it's very difficult to get sterilizing immunity. Um, and that's why we don't have, for example, flu shots that completely prevent infection with influenza virus. So I think that there's no way that you could say that that vaccines are ever going to mitigate uh, mutation. I think, though, that you can mitigate the effect that these mutants have and the, the ability for new variants to arise by controlling transmission. Right now, vaccines are, I think, the cornerstone of that. Um, and it may help to have updated vaccines that do provide better protection against infection. Um, but that means that we also do need to take other steps to control transmission. We need to continue wearing masks. We need to continue uh, being mindful of the situations that allow SARS coronavirus 2 to spread, including among vaccinated people or people with prior immunity. If we can reduce transmission, then we can reduce the number of mutations and we will reduce the number of variants that arise. Now, you mentioned uh, t taking measures to, to keep ourselves safe, Angela. And last month, the CDC dropped testing requirements for international travelers arriving in the U.S. Likewise, most major airline companies have dropped their masking mandates. As someone who has flown in the past week masked, I was one of few people uh, in, in the airport's I visited who who was masked. So how should travelers think about protecting themselves with these precautions gone? Dr. Offit, I'll come to you first. Right. It, it's it's this is a short incubation period mucosal respiratory infection. Even if the entire world were vaccinated, the virus would still circulate and would still cause mild disease, which is really protection against which is mediated by sort of high levels of virus-specific neutralizing antibodies, which will fade over time. Um, and, and so at some point, we're going to have to get used to that. At some point, we're going to have to get used to mild disease as being part of this, this virus, and we're, we're not yet. I mean, the, we're coming off this zero-tolerance notion of not being able to accept any level of infection, even asymptomatic infection. And if, if you're one of those people, then you were asked to quarantine yourself. But 
uh, you're starting to already see us backing away from that. I mean, the definition of pandemic is that it changes the way that you live, work, or play. You can see already in many parts of this country, that's not true anymore. People are just going back to life as normal, which in, in the future is going to mean, I think likely not only for years, but for decades, dealing with a virus that will continue to cause mild illness because that's the nature of this virus. Uh, it, it's a, when you have a short incubation period, these like as Dr. Rasmussen said, influenza or rotavirus or respiratory syncytial virus, those, those viruses, because they have a short incubation period, it's very hard to have sort of activation and differentiation of these memory immune cells that can then prevent you from having any nature of infection, including mild infection. That's not going to happen. So... I just think at some point we're going to have to learn to live with mild disease associated with this virus. Well, Angela, a question I hear a lot from people is is whether or not we can bank on any subvariant or variant that emerges from here on out really giving us mild illness, or is there a possibility of a subvariant or a variant that uh, creates more severe illness in people? Yeah, so, so this is a really common uh, misconception, and that is the idea that all viruses normally evolve to be attenuated or to be less virulent. That's not true. Um, as I mentioned just a minute ago, viruses mutate as part of a random process that's normal to their replication. And from a virus's perspective, uh, they don't really care if they cause disease in their host so long as they're not killing the host before they can transmit to another host to make more viruses. Because essentially viruses are programmed to do one thing and one thing only, and that is make more viruses. Um, so it's certainly possible that we could have a virus uh, or a variant that evolves that is considerably more virulent. Now, what I think will mitigate that is the fact that at this point, everybody does have, uh, for the most part, the vast majority of people do have some pre-existing immunity. Now that's going to mitigate disease severity most likely because the virus is not the only determinant of disease severity. The host plays a big role in this. And a big part of that is having immunity that exists before you ever encounter that virus. So that's the good news. But I think the bad news is that, as you pointed out, you know, people have stopped doing some of these other mitigating measures that can reduce transmission. I myself was flying yesterday and just as you observed, uh, the vast majority of people in the U.S. Um, were, were unmasked. And the only reason there were more people masked in Canada is that it's still a requirement um, when you're flying to Canada. So I think that we still need to do more on that front to get transmission down to the point that, that we have less virus circulating in the community. But I do agree with Dr. Offit that we're not going to be able to eliminate this virus. And we are going to have to slowly transition to a point where we do have a low level of virus circulating, and that's most likely going to cause mild disease in most people with prior immunity. And that is going to be our new normal, unfortunately, going forward. We'll be back with more in just a moment. And remember to have your questions answered on future conversations. Download our 1A Fox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get back to the conversation and add a new voice. Dr. Ashish Jha is the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. We sat down with him last week at the Aspen Ideas Festival. So the FDA's independent panel of vaccine experts recommend COVID vaccine boosters that target the Omicron subvariant this fall. It's the first time vaccine makers have been asked to develop a, a formula targeting a specific variant. 
Why are FDA experts recommending this change now? Yeah, so if you look at the vaccines we've had, the prototype, the ones that were created really early in the pandemic, they've done a fabulous job at protecting us from serious illness. But the virus has evolved to a point where now it's really quite effective at escaping our immunity against infection. So that's why we see that vaccines, people who are vaccinated are getting infected at, at, you know, uh, almost the same rate, not quite, but almost the same rate as unvaccinated people. So then the question is, what can we do? And, And what we need to do is we need to keep up with the virus. And so what the experts basically said is that it's time to reformulate the vaccine. So it more closely targets the virus that is prevalent now, and that will provide a higher level of protection. And to be clear, for people who are vaccinated but who contract COVID, what kinds of outcomes do they experience? Yeah, so if you're vaccinated, and particularly if you're vaccinated and boosted, and I actually really think that those three doses are all necessary. So people who are vaccinated and boosted, what we're seeing is most people who have uh, breakthrough infections tend to have very, very mild disease. Uh, you know, often does just feel like a cold. Some people have a more serious cold or kind of flu-like uh, event. But, you know, unless you get into people who are very vulnerable, immunocompromised, uh, severely uh, kind of have severe comorbid conditions, most people do very, very well. It's that other group, that group of immunocompromised and others who still can get pretty sick with a breakthrough infection. But thankfully, that's pretty uncommon. So how, how do you define fully vaccinated right now? Well, there's the official CDC definition, which still says two doses. But I think if you want to think functionally, what do you need for that maximum level of protection? Uh, certainly three doses in my mind is a minimum. And, you know, for older people, uh, FDA, CDC have now come out and said, if it's been more than five months uh, since you got that third shot, you probably should go ahead and go get your fourth shot. What you're doing with these additional shots is you're just layering on more protection, especially as the virus continues to evolve. Uh, being up to date, that's the term people are using, uh, just means that your immune system some is sort of optimized for the virus that's out there. When I hear about this approach to boosters, I, it, it sounds as if we've accepted that this is going to be endemic in our population and, and that we're no longer at a point where we're talking about eradicating the virus from the population. Is, is that accurate? It is accurate that I think elimination, eradication, those are really no longer on the table. It's so widespread. It has gotten into the animal population. The virus is going to be with us forever. So then the question is, how do we live with this virus in a way that doesn't cause a lot of people getting sick? It doesn't cause uh, disruptions in our life. Uh, And that's got to be the strategy now is keep infections low, uh, make sure people are not getting seriously ill, make sure it's not disrupting our daily activities. Uh, That is the strategy that we're focused on. And I think that's got to be the strategy that the you know most Americans have to sort of be thinking about in terms of how to manage this virus in their own life. When did we cross that threshold? When did we move from trying to eradicate the virus, um, getting control of it in the population, to this is something we have to live with? I would say pretty early on. I mean, there was a window of opportunity probably in the first couple of months of this pandemic, where if we could have really scaled up kind of global uh, testing, uh, tracing, isolation, that could have been a strategy for eradication. Um, you know, some people had thought that with widespread vaccinations, we could have done this. But this virus has continued to evolve in a way that that's made it very difficult. Um, we've obviously had large pockets of both America and the rest of the world that's not vaccinated. That combination has made it essentially impossible to eradicate this virus. So it's been more than two years since SARS-CoV-2 cases first started appearing in the U.S., 
As of late June, the CDC says there's 100,000 COVID cases a day. Hospitalization admissions are roughly 5,000 daily, and 300 people are dying each day from the virus. How would you characterize the current stage of the pandemic? Yeah, this is um, is a great question. And it's not totally straightforward, right? Because on one hand, you can look at this and say, well, 300 deaths, that's way better than where we were. And that is true. And that is worth acknowledging and worth celebrating that we're in much better shape than we were in. But 100,000 cases, and I actually think we're missing a vast majority of infections, a lot of people doing home testing, other reasons, a lot of people not testing at all. You know, my best estimate is that we're probably generating five, 600,000 infections a day. So the half a million people getting infected every day, uh, 5,000 hospitalizations, 300 deaths, 300 deaths turns out, you know, just annualized it, it's 100,000 people dying a year. This is not acceptable. Like, that is cannot be a new normal. That's two, three times worse than a bad flu season. Um, so we're, what I sort of look at this moment, I think, well, thank God we are where we are compared to where we were. I mean, when the president came into the office, you know, 3,000 people were dying a day. That was calamitous. This is clearly better. And we should acknowledge and celebrate that. But we should not take the current status as kind of our new normal and say this is fine. But within that context, one in three Americans in new Axios-Ipsos poll believe the pandemic is over. So how do you combat misinformation, um, fatigue, as we have to acknowledge millions of immunocompromised and unvaccinated Americans remain vulnerable to yeah. this virus? Yeah. Yeah. This is this is hard. You know, what that has meant for me is uh, helping people understand that that they don't have to be in that kind of hunkered down phase anymore. If you're vaccinated, you're boosted, we've got access to treatments, diagnostic tests are widespread and and easily available. That should give people comfort. They should be able to feel a bit more confidence in where they are. That all said, you know, and nobody really wants to hear it, you know, that uh, we still have work to do, that this pandemic continues to pose challenges. There are serious risks to kind of where the fall and winter might be. might turn out we have a mild fall and winter, but it also may turn out that we have a large wave of infections. And we've got to prepare for that. We've got to get ready. I think communicating all of that kind of openly and in a straightforward way um, I, I think most Americans are, are willing to understand and, and that that's the reality of where we are and act accordingly. Uh, according to data collected by the CDC, nearly one in five American adults who have had COVID are still dealing with long-haul symptoms. Um, there are even reports of infants and toddlers facing long-haul symptoms. Is this another public health crisis for the country? And if so, does the White House have plans to address it? You know, as I have looked across at the data, it is true that one in five, maybe even one in four people a month later are still ha- still have real symptoms. But many of them go on to resolve. But there are probably, and again, the estimates here are hard, but in the single digits, five, 10% of people who end up having significant symptoms, sometimes disabling symptoms that last months, or of course, there are some people who've now had it for two years. That is a real problem. So back in March, the president put out a, a presidential memorandum where he tasked uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services to put together an all-of-government response to long COVID. Uh, we're gonna, you're going to see that report, there are two reports actually come out in early August on this. Um, and what he said, what the president asked us to do was he said, I want to think about what else do we need to be doing on research? 
what should the government be doing in terms of policy changes in Medicare, in Medicaid, in Social Security? We've got to, we've got to support these individuals. Um, we have to treat these individuals. And we have to do research to figure out how to help these individuals. So you are going to see that kind of all of government response from the administration. The president takes this very seriously. In my personal conversations with him, he's been very clear that he is concerned about this and wants to make sure we're doing everything right. And so in, in terms of what policy approach you, you could take, you, you mentioned a, a couple of things, but can you give us a specific example of something that could help us address this issue? I want to make sure, and again, we're going to see a lot of this stuff spelled out in the next month or so. I want to make sure that our, our disability rules are up to date so they can take into account people who are who are disabled from long COVID. Um, I want to make sure that we have, I mean, simple things like just medical codes for long COVID. Because if you can't code for it, often physicians won't uh, won't uh, you know kind of treat it or identify it. That means our ability to track it goes down. So there's a bunch of like tiny policy things and big policy policy things that we need to be doing that the administration is working on. And again, we're going to see a, that more comprehensive explanation uh, coming up. But fundamentally, what we're trying to achieve is making sure that people with long COVID are plugged into the healthcare system, get the care they need. I also want to see as many of them as possible enrolled in, in work that's happening at NIH in terms of cohort studies and clinical trials, because we've got to figure out how do we help these people get better. According to a Robert Wood Johnson and Harvard School of Public Health poll in May, slightly more than half of Americans have a great deal of trust in the CDC. Less than 40% have trust in the National Institutes of Health. How do we restore trust in the institutions that are essential to navigating this pandemic and other health crises we're, we're certain to face in the future? Yeah. Look, these agencies faced, as the whole country faced, an unprecedented health crisis. I mean, once in a century event. So, you know, people often criticize CDC for changing its guidance. In fact, you want CDC to change its guidance. As new data and science comes in, you want them to update that. Many people have used that kind of against the against these agencies. Not to excuse the fact that CDC and FDA, have, as, as admirably as they've performed, they've not been perfect. They've made mistakes. So in my mind, restoring trust takes several things. I mean, one, trust is about... Uh, openness and dialogue. I think we need to have a very open kind of look at how the CDC could be improved. I think we need to continue working on communicating with the American people through these agencies uh, that's straightforward, that explains uncertainties, helps people understand what we're doing to try to uh, close those gaps. But it is essential. You know, one thing I always remind people is when you look across the world and ask, why did some countries do better than others? It's not about how many doctors they had. It's not about the, the health system. The single biggest determinant of why some countries did better than others in terms of preventing illness and death is how much trust they had in their institutions and how much trust they had in each other. Um, building, rebuilding the trust that we have lost is, I think, the work of the next decade. And we've got to get to it. And, and starting now is not too soon. That was Dr. Ashish Jha. He's the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. Today's producers were Arfi Getty and Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk more soon. This is 1A.